Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can um, gather here this morning. And um, Sunday youth can just go out as well at this time. Father, we just pray once again for those in the children's church. Uh, Father, for those in creche. Father, for Sunday youth as they go out now and uh, and also for Friday you've just for the generations from generation in this church father that you would that your spirit would move in their hearts that your truth would be established in their minds father this morning as well we just thank you that we can come in freedom in in this uh, in this country and uh, to read your word uh, to practice your word and to be a fellowship of your people in Jesus name we pray amen um I was thinking this week, uh, I was thinking about what William was just saying there as well. Um, how do we, how do we um, connect with people? How do we uh, meet people where they are? Uh, how do we meet people where they are in life? You know, so if somebody's going through a difficult time, a hard time, how do we meet people? You know, if somebody's going through a difficult time, we don't come to that person and kind of laugh. Uh, if somebody's going through a good time, then we perhaps wouldn't go to them and cry. Um, how do we meet people where they are? So if, you know, if somebody was hungry, then what would we do in that place? How would we meet that person where they are? You know, hopefully we would go with food if somebody was hungry. How do we meet people where we are? And I was thinking about this and I thought a story that I heard a while ago. There was a couple that had, um, had a child, brand new baby. And they were, um, you know, new parents, didn't really know what to do per se children don't come with instruction manuals and so on the way from the hospital they thought well, how are we going to feed the child and this couple they really like McDonald's so they thought what we'll do we'll go to Macca's we'll get strawberry milkshake um, get, get a you know cup of coke fries cheeseburger and then they went home and they were sitting with the child there and they thought well so that you know they started to feed the child some milkshake put the milkshake in its mouth coke in its mouth because milk Milk, milkshake is milk, and uh, and then they gave it a bit of fry as well. It's hard for the child to chew it, you know. They're just gumming it, and um, now story is not true, but um, <laughs> but um, but the point being is that you would have to really, when you have a new child, you have to meet the child where the child is at. You can't go home and give you. Sorry if I shocked anyone there. Um, you can't go home and give the child a milkshake. You have to give. You have to give the child milk. The, the child can't have solids, and you definitely don't want to be giving it maccas. You never want to be eating maccas. You definitely don't want to give a baby McDonald's. But I thought it's important to meet people where they're at. And then another thing that I was thinking about: if we've got who's English here? Who comes from England? Nice. So we've got a few. It's good. No, 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 there's a few. And um, so typically, Engli English can do this. And as Australians, you might do this as well. When you go on holiday, so English will go to Europe. You know, you might go to Spain or you might go to Greece or something like that. And English, um, you know, it's the common language. Everybody should speak English. And so, um, so when you go on holiday, you know, you meet people who don't speak English. So let's say you're in Spain. And uh, so what you say to the Spanish, you know, let's say you're looking for a restaurant. And so you, you'll see a local Spaniard there and you'll say where's the restaurant can you help me find the restaurant and the Spanish person might say no hablo English you know no comprendo like they don't I don't understand I don't speak English so what English people generally do and Australians might do this as well if somebody doesn't understand the language then the best thing to do is to speak louder and slower so where is the restaurant and and hopefully they get it then and can guide you put send you to the restaurant that isn't meeting people where they're at. So we really have to be speaking the same language. You know, the other day as well, I was walking around with my son 
And often we'll go for a walk in the morning or we'll go for a walk in the afternoon. And as we was walking around, I said to him, I goes, do you want to hear a God story? Do you want to hear a God? And he's like, yeah, yeah I want to hear a God story. I thought, that's great, good sign. And, um, and so I, I thought, what story can I tell him? And I thought, well, maybe I could tell him the story of David and Goliath. So I started to tell him the story, and then I realized that the story is actually about a guy who kind of flings a rock into someone's head, kills him, then cuts his head off. So, ah, <laughs> maybe not the right story. So I thought, okay, well, let's try Noah's Ark. And then I thought, oh, well, actually, Noah's Ark about, is about God wiping the whole, well, bar eight people off the face of the planet. So you've got to meet people where they're at. So I'll give him the kid version. And it's difficult to meet people where they're at, you know. But when we see, when we look at Jesus, when we see what Jesus does, Jesus is really good at meeting people where they're at. So last week, Anthony spoke about this blind man. Um, This week, we're talking about Nicodemus. And what you see with Jesus is that Jesus doesn't treat everybody the same. He doesn't treat everybody the same. So with Nicodemus, he comes across and he says, you must be born again. When he's speaking to the woman at the well, he says that, that he talks about the living water, right? When he sees the woman in adultery, he says, go out and sin no more. So he's like, each person he's treating as individuals. He doesn't just kind of have this, this tract. He has the four spiritual laws. He meets people where they're at and he interacts with them and he connects with them. This is Jesus. So one thing is that Jesus, he meets people where they're at, but Jesus also crosses boundaries, Jesus also crosses boundaries. Sometimes he violates people's boundaries. People have religious boundaries and he can violate what they perceive to be the right thing. But boundaries are everywhere around us. Uh, So, you know, when I was coming to Australia, uh, I had to go through certain boundaries. There's certain things that I had to do. I got a a working holiday visa. Then I got a, um, uh, then I met Jen and I got sponsored by her and I got permanent residency. Uh, she said I was a, her sponsor child, and uh, <laughs> uh, so I got the working holiday visa, and then I, and then I got citizenship, and so I had to cross those boundaries. Sometimes people can violate boundaries in countries. You know, you can enter a country illegally, and you violate those boundaries. So, but there's boundaries everywhere we look, and you've got cultural boundaries as well. So you can think about what's recently happened, Australia Day. You know, when Woolworths said when Woolworths said we're not going to sell uh, Australia Day merchandise. For Peter Dutton, the leader of the coalition, that was a violation of his cultural boundary. He didn't like that. And he, and he told the whole country to boycott Woolworths because of it. It violated his boundary, right? This cultural boundary. They stepped on his boundary, so to speak. Um, even the discussions around Australia Day, you know, some people will say, well, let's change it or let's keep it the same. People on both sides feel like their boundaries are being violated. So whatever somebody's opinion on that, kind of whatever it is, is whatever it is, but people feel as though their boundaries are being violated. Interestingly, and then, and then also um, you can have family boundaries as well. So, you know, if you're in a family, you might be the type of family where um, all discussions within the family are kept in house. You never talk about family business outside of the family because that would be a violation of the family boundary. We have individual boundaries as well. So if somebody came to me and said, Jason, um, you're an idiot. I'd be like, you've, you kind of, you've crossed the boundary. I've heard it before. People have said it, but you've crossed the boundary and you've called me an idiot, right? I've heard worse, but either way, that's a boundary crossing, right? And we all have these boundaries. Churches have boundaries. Uh, once upon a time, I think in Baptist circles before my time, it was forbidden to dance. You weren't allowed to dance as a, you know, as a Christian because perhaps you know, you're putting your salvation at risk or you're not really truly a Christian. Now dancing's on the table, right? So, like, somewhat. Um, 
And so there's all these boundaries, right? Tattoos, in one sense. Tattoos, for many people, can be a boundary violation as a Christian. I mean, perhaps people with tattoos aren't Christians. And um, so these are boundary violations, right, that some people have. I think things have changed in culture, and it's different. We have different perspectives now. Um, even when we come to church and where we sit, as I look around, people have their typical seats where they normally sit. Uh, now, we might not be the type of church where if you've come to church and somebody's sitting in your seat, per se, you might not say, excuse me, this is mine. Um, I w- having said that, I was actually, Jen and I went to Melbourne a few years ago. We went to a synagogue. And this synagogue actually had on each seat people's names. So people paid for their seats. I think we should do it here. It'd be a good, it'd be, it'd be a good fundraiser. <laughs> so... But, but however, if wherever you're sitting, you know, if you come in, let's say Gil, Gil normally sits here, um, not just not making, anyway, so, but if somebody sits in your seat, you might think, ooh, somebody's sitting there. Now, you might not ask them to move, but you realize, you feel something, oh man, what are they doing in my seat, right? So you may feel something when you come to, that's the boundary, the violation of boundary, we start to feel anxious or angry or upset or sad or just a bit uncomfortable because something's, something's touching that boundary. So Jesus, and even, even positive, so you can look at the positives. Sometimes the way that boundaries are crossed is negative and sometimes in a violation way, but sometimes it's positive. Historically, you could say slavery was abolished in the West, right? So it's like that boundary was crossed. However, there's apparently there's more slavery today than there is than there ever has been in history. So it's like 30 to 50 million people in slavery today. And we might be living off the backs of some slaves. However, um, there was abolition in the West. And so, you know, you can look at some positives. Women can vote now, right? So that's a positive, that's a, a good crossing of the boundary. Uh, the hospital where I work, uh, 1937, Mount Lawley, St. John of God, uh, where I work as, w- as well as here. Um, 1937, when that hospital was first started, when it was first started, women weren't allowed to get loans from the bank. They had to go with the priest to get a loan, right? So times have changed. Uh, women can now get loans. Perhaps this is a good thing. And... Um, <laughs> it is, it, of course it's a good thing. Of course it is. I'm just joking, just joking. <laughs> so so we, we progress and we move on. But for many people in that time, that would have been contentious. People would have been saying, well, why, why should women be able to get loans, right? But we move past these boundaries, thank God, right? And we, and we come to a society where we have people in equal standing, which is good. And so Jesus... Jesus comes in and, and he kind of crosses these boundaries. So you can, again, you can think of Nicodemus and he crosses boundaries there. The blind man who Anthony spoke about, the religious leaders, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. This was a religious boundary which they had, right? It was a false boundary. It was a, uh, they were interpreting the Sabbath incorrectly. However, he healed on the Sabbath and so their boundary was violated. These things, this is what Jesus does in this way. And so we come to this story with Nicodemus. If we got the text, chapter, chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles or your devices, I'll just read. So this is, the, this is the dialogue. This is the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus. It says, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So first of all, Nicodemus, when Jesus encounters Nicodemus, he's this, this guy is like, he's high up right? 
He would be honored in society. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Some people say he was part of like the great Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men, and they would have been revered in society. The Sanhedrin, the kind of great Sanhedrin, would have been something like the Supreme Court in America or the High Court in Australia. This guy was high up, right? So he was respected. Um, Interestingly, with the Pharisees as well, often you'll see that when Jesus encounters different people in the scriptures, so with the Pharisees, Pharisees often get this kind of like, they get a bad rap, right? Often they get critiqued by Jesus. But Pharisees were quite, their beliefs and understanding were wide and varied. So as we sit here as Christians, our beliefs are wide and varied. And some of us practice some things and some of us don't practice other things. And so it was the same with the Pharisees. They didn't all just believe the same thing. And you can see this because Nicodemus is the one who's coming to see Jesus, right? Nicodemus is the one coming to see Jesus. Now the text, have you just got the text there again? So what happens, you get Nicodemus coming up to Jesus and the few important points here, right? So first of all, he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So apparently there's other people that are thinking the same way as Nicodemus. We know that you are a teacher from God. So you see Nicodemus coming. The other thing that happens as well is that you can see Nicodemus, this man came at night, He came at night. Lots of people point this out in the text. He didn't come during the day when everybody was there. Nicodemus came at night. So this prominent guy in society is kind of coming at night to see Jesus. He's kind of unsure about Jesus. It reminded me of when I first, well, before I came to Christ and I was trying to work out who Jesus is. Who is he? And so I started to go to a church. It was Riverview where I went to and it was weird for me. Like people stood up, then sat down, stood up, then sat down and sang this and sang that, listened to some guy talking. It was strange. And for me at that time, I was talking to people and saying, trying to work out who Jesus is, asking questions about Jesus. What will people think about me if I believe in Jesus? Will people mock me? Will people like me? Will it change my, who my friends are, right? So Nicodemus, in one sense, is going through a similar thing. He's trying to work out who Jesus is. He comes at night because he probably doesn't want people to know that he's going to see him, right? And so he's trying to protect his reputation in one sense. So, The conversation here, have you just got the next verse as well? So the conversation goes on. It says, Jesus replied, truly I tell you. So this is, so this Nicodemus first says that you look like somebody, the the works that you're doing, the works that you're doing must be coming from God. No one can do these works unless they're coming from God. Nicodemus makes this statement. Now for me, whenever I see the conversations with Jesus, they always seem a little bit strange to me. Because if somebody came, my assumption is that if somebody came to Jesus, if Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, hey, the works that you're doing look like they're coming from God, you might expect the response to be something like, um, well, the Father and I are one. If the Father's working, I'm working. Yes, Nicodemus, you're right. Yes, these works are from God. But he doesn't kind of follow on the train of thought of where Nicodemus is traveling. In fact, he, he kind of goes on a bit of a detour. So he's meeting, so what Jesus does, he meets Nicodemus where he's at. He begins to cross this boundary and then he redirects him on the path that he needs to be on. So instead, Jesus, when Nicodemus makes this comment, Jesus just says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now the first thing that I wanna bring in here is that when Jesus is saying this, Jesus is risking being offensive. So in many different conversations, we just got to say, Jesus is risking being offensive. 
And I think in a culture like this, where often it's very politically correct, we kind of often back away and we want to be very careful that we're not offensive to people. But Jesus risks being offensive. Now, he does it with grace and he does it with compassion. And when we have conversations, as William was saying earlier, sometimes you'll just say something, right? You'll just say it out loud. And there's a risk there that somebody could be offended in what you're saying. But as long as we're doing it with grace and compassion, but Jesus crosses these boundaries and you can see in the conversation that Nicodemus does get his back up and he doesn't quite understand what Jesus is saying, but it's a bit of an, an affront to him as well. And often this happens. So you can see it when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, when he calls them a brood of vipers, but you can see it when Jesus starts crossing these boundaries within the culture in which he is. When I was thinking about this and having conversations as well, for me, when I'm working in the hospital and when I'm with so, so, for example, if you're having a conversation with people and there's always a se- you know, the sense that you want to try and not, not purposefully be offensive, but listen to what's going on underneath. When I'm in hospital and having conversations, sometimes a key thing is this, that I'll, if I'm having a conversation, something will come to mind. Let's say we're talking about God or we're talking about spirituality or we could be just talking about something in general. Something will come to mind and a question will be there. And I'll leave it there. It'll be in my mind. And then we'll carry on the conversation. I'm thinking, is this a prompting from God? Is this a prompting from God? And then if the question comes to mind again, is this a prompting from God? And then the third time, it's not that the third is a, a magic rule per se, but if it, com- if it keeps coming to my mind, then I know that I'm going to ask the question. Because the question that comes to mind, I might think this, this person might be disturbed by this. They might be offended by this. But if, the, if it's coming, then it might be experience. It might be my gut, but it might be the spirit prompting me. The other thing when I see that Jesus having these conversations is also listen to what's being offered. What's being offered? What is somebody saying to you? Sometimes there's particular words that stand out that somebody's saying they keep repeating the same word. And often I'll be with that person and you might say, you know, you you might just repeat. They might just keep saying I'm lonely or I'm distant or something like that. And it's like, you keep saying this. You keep saying this word. And then it might draw something else out, right? So it's listening intently. And this is what Jesus does in a lot of his encounters. He's listening intently as to what's being said. Have you just got the text again? So, so again, so now with this dialogue, some of the things that are really confronting to Nicodemus, number one is that he says, born again. You must be born again. And the second thing that he says is this, that he says, see seeing the kingdom. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. So first of all, often when we say kind of born again Christian, it always interests me. This is one of my quirks, I guess. It interests me because it's similar to saying, it was, let's say a couple of decades ago, lots of people were talking about being born again. But the interesting concept of this is like when we say born again Christian, it's almost like saying you're a Christian Christian. You know, so it's like when you go, when you go to the bank or let's say if you go to an ATM machine, right? Really, that's an automated teller machine machine. It's like an ATM or a PIN number, personal identification number number. You just have to say PIN or ATM. It's the same as saying born again. It's like a born again. If you're born again Christian, you're a Christian Christian. If you're born again, you're a genuine Christian. You don't get Christians that aren't born again in one sense. And so this is the first thing that Jesus brings up, but he also talks about seeing the kingdom. And he says, unless one is born, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Seeing the kingdom is synonymous with being in the kingdom. Synonymous with being in the kingdom. If a baby is born, if a baby is born like a fresh baby, they don't just see the world when they enter the world, they enter into the world. And this is what Jesus is making the point. When somebody is born again, they're giving spiritual eyes. 
I remember when I came to Christ and all of a sudden my eyes were opened and it's not just, I don't just see God working in my life, but I see God working everywhere and I see God working in the world as well. It's like we're giving eyes to see the kingdom of God at work. We're giving eyes to see the redemption of God in the world. To see the kingdom of God is to see the hand of God at work, uh, to see it everywhere, God's sovereign hand. Now Nicodemus responds to Jesus and he says, how can someone be born when they're old. Can they enter again into their mother's womb and be born again? This is, this is Nicodemus's response to Jesus' to Jesus' statement. And sometimes people look at this and they'll say, Nicodemus, you fool, you silly man. Like, really, is this what you think, Nicodemus? He's like, this guy is at the top of his league. Like, this guy is smart. He's, you know, he can read, he can write. He's like, he's one of the governors. He's one who's direct. He, he's not actually saying to Jesus, do you think somebody can be put back into the womb and then be reborn again? He's probably going figuratively in the same way that Jesus is. Jesus is using figurative language to help Nicodemus explain, and Nicodemus is kind of giving him back. It's almost like saying, can you teach an old dog new tricks? How can I be born again? How can I relearn everything, right? This is what Nicodemus is saying back to Jesus. And so, and then if we just got uh, verses five to nine, so this is what Jesus says. This is how he responds to Nicodemus. And he says, unless someone is born of water, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit of spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. So these two key words at the top, when, he, when he's having this encounter, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's three interpretations that people often give to this. The first one is this, that they say that water is baptism. So you must be baptized by water, and the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. I don't, th- I don't give much credibility to that view. There's two other interpretations. Another one says that what Jesus is saying is that the water is the breaking of water. The breaking of water, when you give birth, when a woman gives birth, the water breaks, and so you enter the world, and so that must happen, and you also must be born of the Spirit of God as well. So some people say that, and they reference the next verse after. He cannot enter the kingdom of God Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the spirit of spirit. So it's almost like Jesus is kind of doubling down on what he's saying. However, Jesus expects Nicodemus to be able to know this. And so the other interpretation that people give is that um, Jesus is actually referencing Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. And this is what it says here. It says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. Because Jesus says to Nicodemus, it's like, how do you not know these things? He says, you're the teacher. You're, the ru- you're one of the rulers of Israel. And you don't know these things. He expected him to know. And Nicodemus would have known this text. So it might be that Jesus was referencing the Old Testament here and what was going to happen with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what happens to Nicodemus now is that Jesus crosses this boundary of him. He crosses this religious boundary because for Nicodemus, the idea, the idea of being born again, the idea of being born afresh, the the idea of learning everything anew was foreign to him. So what Jesus is saying here fundamentally, put yourself in the place of Nicodemus. So like Paul, if you think about the text, I think it's in Philippians, where Paul 
labels his credentials. When he says that I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law, blameless. Nicodemus would have been in the same light. He would have believed the same things. According to the law, blameless. I'm part of the nation of Israel. I'm a seed of Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. This is how I claim my right to God per se. And what Jesus is saying is saying, no, Nicodemus, this is not the case. You must be born again. Where the Spirit goes, the Spirit goes. Where the wind blows, the wind blows. Jesus is emphatic in saying that Nicodemus is not about reformation. It's not just for Nicodemus just to put a sprinkle of Jesus here and a sprinkle of Jesus there. It's actually complete regeneration and renewal which Nicodemus, Nicodemus needed and the Apostle Paul recognized he needed as well. When I was thinking about this, what Jesus does in this conversation, he hears what's going on for Nicodemus underneath. He hears the story which Nicodemus is telling. Nicodemus is telling a story that he must be righteous. He must keep the law. Nicodemus is telling a story that is about nationality. He's telling a story that he must be circumcised, that he must do this, that he must do that, that he must do that in order to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no. For us, when we're having conversations with people, it's always important to hear the story which is going on underneath hearing the story which is going on underneath as people speak. Uh, Proverbs 18.13. Have you got that slide, Ethan? It says this, spouting off before listening that is foolish and shameful. If we're having conversations with people in the community or at work or wherever it is, it is to listen to the story which is going on underneath. When I'm, when I'm speaking to people at hospital or speaking to people wherever it is, it's always hearing what's going on underneath. Nicodemus, it was about self-righteousness, it was about keeping the law, so on and so forth. But other people, if you're listening in the conversation, they'll bring up things that are, that, are, that are part of their story. I was talking to a lady the other day who was an atheist. And as soon as I started talking to her, she's like, you don't believe in God, do you? Uh, he's like a fairy, you know, he's like, um, what do you call it, a fairy. And she started, you know, she was like, she was, she's been quite harsh in what she was saying to me. And, um, but I didn't become defensive. It was about listening to her story. Why has she come to the conclusions that she has? Why are you thinking that way? What has happened to you? What's happened in your life? But you'll hear little things that will come up in people's stories. Sometimes it might be something like, I'm a failure. People will have this mantra in their life, I'm a failure. I'm no good. Things always go wrong for me. And it's like, well, tell me more. How do things go wrong for you? How are you a failure? What's happened in your life? Be inquisitive. Hear the story which is behind it. Because often when we talk, there's all this noise. But little words will, will creep up. I was having a conversation with Anthony the other day, and he picked it up on me. I was saying this word, and he's like, you keep saying this word in the conversation. He picked it up really well. It's like, man, it's like, because this is what we do. We, can, we don't even realize sometimes that we're giving our story away in the conversations. As Christians and having spiritual conversations, it's to listen to those words. And sometimes it can be offensive when we bring it up. Sometimes people can become defensive, but we must take those risks. Listen to the story. Risk being offensive with grace and compassion. Jesus finishes this conversation with Nicodemus. Um, and 
he goes to, there's a popular passage, John 3.16, which we all know. That's part of the dialogue of Nicodemus. And he goes on and he kind of like, he alludes to the crucifixion and the resurrection. He alludes to the story of Moses with the serpent and so on forth, right? What I want to do now, I want to keep that in mind. That's really, really, really important. But I want to I ask the question, where does Nicodemus end up? Where does he end up? Because at the beginning, he's coming at night. He comes at night to see Jesus. He's somewhat afraid. He's cautious. He's wary, right? Where does he end up going through John's gospel? Where does he end up in the story of Jesus? You see, there's two more, there's two more um, times that Nicodemus um, kind of pokes his head up in the gospel of John. One is in chapter 7 and the other one is chapter 19. The first one is this, and you can sort of see that what happens with Nicodemus is he's starting to come out of his shell right? First he comes at night, then he starts to come out of his shell. John chapter 7 verse 50, um, the context is that um, the religious leaders are not liking what Jesus is doing. They're critiquing Jesus. And Nicodemus stands up and, and he says, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So he asks the question, like, hang on, you can critique Jesus, but our law says we must bring him forward and we must judge him by our law. And their response is, do you come from Galilee as well? Like they critique Nicodemus for this. They shut him down. They push him down. Instead of, but, but either way, Nicodemus is starting to become more confident. He's starting to raise his voice. He's starting to stand out for Jesus, right? The next time we see Nicodemus is at the end of John's gospel when, um, when, when Jesus is crucified. And, and what happens at this time, he brings about 35 kilograms of myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus' body. Nicodemus starts in the night and he progressively starts standing for Jesus more and more and more to the point where Jesus is crucified and then he's full out bringing the allies to anoint Jesus' body. That can be the same for many of us, that often we start in the night, but we progressively stand out for Jesus. So my question for all of us is how can we stand out for Jesus? What can we do in our context to stand out for Jesus? What William did, you know, it's that conversation. Yes, I was at church. How do we stand out for Jesus? Jesus Christ. Um, I heard a story. Uh, I was talking to someone a while ago and they said um, they were going to this church and you might agree with me, you might not agree with me on this. They were going to this church and there was a pastor there. So obviously it's a church. Anyways, this pastor was quite well off because he's, his wife had a really, really good business. So they were well off. They had a beautiful house, beautiful car, right? Beautiful house, beautiful car. And, um, and so this lady would go to their house, but her car was a bit insignificant. It wasn't as good as theirs. And every time she went to their house, every time she went to the house, she felt, she felt a bit inadequate. She felt uneasy because of what they had. Now, you know, you could look at her and you can say, well, that's your problem. That's your stuff to deal with. But my question is, if we're standing out for Jesus, what should they do? I'm not saying that they were wrong for spending their money. I'm not saying they were wrong. It's not sinful to have money. But I'm saying that standing in a, in a culture like this, in an affluent culture, where often materialism is the thing, then how do we respond to that? How do we stand out in a culture rather than going along with the philosophy of the culture where kind of like the nicer things you have, the better, the better life is? How do we stand stand out. So again, I'm not saying that's wrong what they did, but for her to feel inadequate, how many other people felt like that? So how do we stand out for Jesus Christ? I think as Christians, it's difficult. I used to work in a, in a clothing warehouse in, a, in, in England, and, uh, and there was lots of Muslims working there. And often you would walk around the corner, and, uh, and there'd be a Muslim there kind of on, on his prayer mat, right, just praying right there. You can't do your work, you can't get past him because he's on his mat. 
But that's, they're standing out for what they believe. My question is, how do we stand out? What do we do? It might just be wearing a cross. Some people wear crosses. That can stand, standing out for Jesus. But where does it start and where does it end? My, my concern for myself is that if I don't stand out for Jesus now, when the rubber hits the road and when things get difficult, how will we stand out for Jesus then? So I think it's the small things. It's the incremental things. And sometimes the things that people don't see. So for me, what I try to do, I wake up in the morning and, and I don't, I'm not perfect at this, but what I try to do is open my Bible straight away. I read two or three chapters straight away. As soon as I open my eyes, I read my Bible. I start to try and fast once a week or once a month, even if it's just a meal. How do I start standing out for Jesus? Because it's the small things in life. It's like this. You know, if I was to say to you, if I was to say to everyone, after church today, let's go run a marathon. Let's get our trainers on. Let's get out there. Let's run a marathon and, and let's see how we go. I think that many of us will probably get to about the first kilometer and we'll be stuck. We might fall. You know, we'd, we'd find it hard to breathe. Who knows what would happen? But, but it would be really difficult. However, if you do want to run a marathon, I mean, even if we train, some of us, you know, still might not be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. But however, hypothetically, if we were going to run a marathon, it means training. It means discipline. It means buying new trainers, new socks, new t-shirt, new shorts. Uh, it means running every single day. It means changing our diet. It means going to sleep and having good sleep. It means really kind of embracing that physically and mentally in order to run the marathon at the end. And I think it's the same for us as Christians that it's about practice. We're all apprentices of Jesus. So it's about practice. What things do we put in now that make us stand out for Jesus? It might be, you know, on a weekend, on a Saturday or Sunday, we put down our devices, we don't watch TV. Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting a Sabbath in one sense as a, as a legalistic way, but I'm just saying, you know, close down the devices, shut down the TV, spend time with God, spend time with family. How and then people are asking, what do you do on a weekend? It's like, I do this. How do we stand out for Jesus? What are we doing in our context? Nicodemus began in the night, and as he progressively went through, he was there at the end and he stood out for Jesus. The challenge for us, especially in this culture, in a changing culture, 10 or 20 years, what will the church look like? How, how will Christians be perceived in this culture? So it's like a training ground now for the future of what it will look like. How do we stand for Jesus? Let us pray. Dear God, um, just thank you for your word and we thank you for these encounters uh, that you have. We thank you for these recorded encounters of Nicodemus, of the blind man, of the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the centurion, whoever it is, and the examples and the lessons that come from it. Help us, Lord, each one of us to think about how we might stand for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.